Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again here. Brian, always good to be with you and trust things are well up there in Idaho. Yep, fall is just moving right along. And you you actually mentioned something before we went on the air here, and I realized that uh, I've been missing out on, on a very important day. Reformation Day. I mean, I, I, I'm anxious to hear about uh, what this day is and what it represents. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. The Reformation Day we commonly celebrate on October 31st because this is the date on which in 1517, Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church, in which he proposed certain propositions that he felt were subject to debate, that he wanted the church officials to debate with them so they could go to the scriptures and find the correct answer to it. And among his basic principles, of course, were that scripture alone, rather than scripture plus, plus tradition, governs, and that we are saved by grace alone and receive that through faith alone. These are only a few of the things that he talked about in those 95 theses that he presented. Now, when I was at the Lutheran Brethren Seminary, of course, I was always kind of a wisecracker, you might say, and I suggested to them that for my thesis at graduation, I was going to do my thesis on a revisionist view of what happened with Martin Luther there in the 95 Theses on October 31st of 1517. My thesis was going to be that he was actually out trick-or-treating, and when Wittenberg wouldn't give him a treat, then as a trick, he nailed the 95 Theses to their door. I was pretty strongly discouraged from writing my thesis on that subject. And obviously, I had no intention of doing so, of course. But it does bring in this interesting parallel between Halloween and Reformation Day, or All Saints Day, as we call it for November 1st, which would be this coming Monday, and then All Hallows' Eve to celebrate all of the dead in Christ the night before. The reason I mentioned this as a beginning is that there has been a myth that has been established in Western Christianity for a number of decades now that our Reformation Day and All Saints Day, All Saints Day particularly, that this was established to counteract a pagan tradition in Northern and Western Europe, particularly among the Celtic peoples, that they called Samhain. We look at it, it looks like Samhain. They pronounce it as Samhain, which was a pagan celebration, and that the church instituted All Saints Day and then All Hallows' Eve the night before as a means of counteracting this. For those who have heard this and believe that, I would suggest you turn to a website that is titled Redeeming Holy Days from Pagan Lies, and then the subtitle of this one is Halloween, A Short History, in which the author, a Lutheran pastor, insists that actually All Saints Day 
long, long precedes the Celtic observation of Samhain. We don't really have documented evidence that Samhain was celebrated until uh, after 1000 AD, whereas All Saints Day goes back into the early days of the church. Secondly, if they had instituted All Saints Day to try to counteract Samhain, this would have been done in northern and western Europe. And in fact, we see All Saints Day celebrated in the 400s AD in Constantinople and other parts of the Eastern Church. Furthermore, as we look to this pagan festival of Samhain, it didn't actually take place on October 31st anyway. It was more in accordance with the autumn equinox, which would be like around the 20th, 21st of November, and the Celts followed a lunar rather than a solar calendar, so it would vary from year to year. But at any rate, this is purely a myth that Reformation Day or even All Saints Day before that, a day to honor the saints, that this is a means of counteracting the pagan festival of Samhain, which has become the pagan festival of Halloween. We look at Halloween today, and of course there's a lot of occultic evidence going on within Halloween today with witches and occultic creatures like this, but to make this a celebration of the harvest, the days when all is safely gathered in and the harvest is, is completed and to make this into a thanksgiving to God based upon the completion of the harvest, that's entirely appropriate. And to celebrate the lives of the saints. And of course, we would understand the term saints as meaning not just those who have been canonized by the Catholic Church, but all those who are believers in Jesus Christ to honor them on a certain day. There's nothing inappropriate at all about that. But I would like to look at October 31st, not as Halloween, and not even as the All Hallows Eve before All Saints Day, but to look at it with Luther and Calvin and others with the Reformation that took place in the 14, 1500s and as we sometimes say, semper reformanda, that is, the Reformation is always going on, and that particularly celebrating this particular event of Martin Luther, posting those 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Church there on October 31st of 1517. And as we talk about Luther's contributions here, they have a lot of contributions to law and government, as well as to theology, and I'd like to focus a little bit about those. A lot of people tend to forget that before Luther became a Catholic monk and then a Protestant reformer, he had been studying law and was planning on going into the legal profession. And in fact, he never lost his interest in law, and he wrote on one occasion, I have written more splendidly and profitably of civil authority than any teacher has ever done, except perhaps St. Augustine, since the days of the apostles. In this I may glory with a good conscience and with the testimony of the world. If you look to Luther's writings, which are, at least one collection of them is 84 volumes, if you 
looked at these writings, you find that Luther devotes more time and space in those writings to the subject of law and government than any other topic except justification by grace through faith. And so let's look a little bit at what Luther's contributions were, and particularly as they apply to law. First of all, Luther makes a sharp distinction between the law and the gospel. And he's not alone in doing this, but he probably clarifies this a great deal when he says that the Bible should be divided into law and gospel, and that's not just between Old and New Testament. There is plenty of law in the New Testament. In fact, every one of the Ten Commandments, except the Sabbath commandment, is repeated in the New Testament, and many other of the Old Testament laws as well. And we find gospel in the Old Testament, like Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. But as Luther defined the difference between law and gospel, law says, this is what you must do for God. Gospel says, this is what God has done for you. In other words, the law convicts us of our sins. The law shows us God's standards of righteousness, shows us that we don't meet up to those standards. And so then we turn to the gospel, which through the gospel, we see how Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. As Luther had put it, before you can comfort people with the milk of the gospel, you must first terrorize them and afflict them with the terrors of the law. Before people can understand that they need God's grace and can understand why Christ died for their sins, they need to first understand that they are sinners. And the law is what convicts us of this. As Paul says in Galatians, the law was our schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ. The law shows us our sin and shows us our need for salvation. Now, we'll focus today mostly on law, but that doesn't mean we don't recognize the primary importance of the gospel in saving our souls. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, and we are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, learning about uh, Reformation Day and about the Reformation itself, and uh, this is some wonderful context. All right, we've talked about law and gospel, but there are some who are going to say, but didn't Paul say that, that the law has been fulfilled and that we are not under law but under grace? Yes, he did. But what did he mean by that? Did he mean that we should just simply chuck the law and throw it out and do whatever we please? That's not what he meant at all when he said we are not under law, but under grace. When he said that we are not under law, there are several things that I think he meant by that. First of all, he meant that we are not under law as a condemnation because Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. Secondly, I think he meant we are not under the law 
as a means of salvation. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by believing in Christ. Now, I think clearly that was true in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, but many in Paul's time had distorted the law into a means of salvation, and Paul was correcting that. Third, I think Paul is saying we're not under the ceremonial law, you know, the portions of the law that deal with the temple, the feasts, the sacrifices, and so on. These have been fulfilled in Christ, and they're valuable today for teaching purposes, but that's the purpose of them today, that we don't live under those portions of the law today. Fourthly, we're not under the extra-biblical law. That is, we're not under things that many people will make up as rules that we are to follow, some of which might be good, but they're not as binding on us as would be the law of the Old Testament. But he doesn't mean by this that the law has no application today. What Luther is saying, and what I think Paul means as well when he says that we're not under law but under grace, is that the law has its place, but that we are saved by the gospel. The law plays its role in our salvation as well, but by convicting us of sin. Luther and Calvin both spoke about three uses of the law. And the first use was that the law has a civil use. That is, we use the law to keep order in society. We take the principles of God's word, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and the like, and we codify these into civil statutes, and we use these to keep order in society so that we can have an orderly society. We call that the civil use of the law. And then the second use of the law, the pedagogical or teaching use of the law, is where, as Paul said, the law was our schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ. The law shows us our sin and shows us our need for salvation. The third, also a teaching use of the law, but this one applied to believers, the didactic use, as we sometimes call it, is that the law is a teaching purpose for Christians to show us how to grow in Christ, to show us the will of God, to show us the mind of God, and to show us how, through the Word, we can conform our lives to Jesus Christ and grow in grace through Him. Now, some say that Luther did not believe that biblical law has any place at all in society, and I'll simply say flatly, having written extensively on Luther, that those who say this are very simply wrong. That, in fact, the, Luther spoke about several types of law. He said there is what he called Recht in the German, which means natural justice, and Gesetz, which he said means natural law, but then he said there's also a category called Saxonspiegel, and by that, he meant laws that are unique to specific places and in the Bible, those portions of the law that are unique to the Jews and don't have application to our society today. He would say that those laws, like the ceremonial laws, they are of unique application to the Jews, and they have no more application today than the laws of France have to Germany. And the Ten Commandments, he said in particular, are entirely a portion of the law that applies today. For example, he said, natural law is the Ten Commandments. It is written on the heart of every human being by creation. 
It was clearly and comprehensively put on Mount Sinai, finer indeed than any philosopher has ever stated. Natural law, then, is created and written in the heart. It does not come from men, but is a created law to which everyone who hears it cannot but consent. Speaking of the Ten Commandments as the Decalogue, he said, The Decalogue is not of Moses, nor did God give it to him first. On the contrary, the Decalogue belongs to the whole world. It was written and engraved in the minds of all human beings from the beginning of the world. In his appeal to the German nobility, he said, Surely good governors, in addition to the Holy Scriptures, would be law enough. And speaks about the need to be subject to God's law, even for those who are in positions of civil authority. Now, Luther's basic premises in the Reformation are sometimes summarized with the solas, meaning the onlys. Scripture only, grace only, faith only. Those are the three primary of the solas. Scola scriptura, meaning scripture alone governs. What he means by this is that ultimately the scriptures are the final authority. Now he isn't saying that we can't benefit from the teaching of theologians, of pastors, of bishops, priests, and so on. But he says that ultimately the scriptures alone govern and each person is responsible directly to God for his state of his soul. In fact, other of the Reformation leaders have been quoted as saying, and Luther would agree with this completely, that every plowboy should be able to read and interpret the scriptures for himself. Now, that had certain civil ramifications as well, because if every plowboy should be able to read and interpret the scripture for himself, then we better make sure every plowboy knows how to read. And, in fact, in countries influenced by the Protestant Reformation, we find that literacy flourishes. It's interesting, in northern Germany, where Luther lived, when Luther was born, literacy stood at 7%. Only 7% of people were literate at that time. By the time Luther died... Literacy in northern Germany was 20%. Now, that's not very high, but it's three times what it was when he was born, tripled in one generation. Now, we note that Luther depended upon the printing press. Gutenberg's invention of the printing press only in the previous century was one of the things that made the Reformation possible because he could get the scriptures and get his messages out to the people. But in a book, Brand Luther, it's also demonstrated how not only did Luther depend upon the press, but the press depended on Luther. Let's say you're a printer back in the 1500s. You've got a printing press, but you can print things. But what's the point of printing anything if nobody can read? Nobody's going to buy it. And so you need a literate public. But besides a literate public, you have to have things that you can print that that public wants to read. And the majority, vast majority of the things that were published in northern Germany during the 1500s were either works of Luther himself or works by Luther's friends or works being written criticizing Luther. In other words, 
Luther and his Reformation were one of the things that made it possible for the printing press to flourish. Now, another thing about literacy. Literacy makes Republican government possible. Unless we have a citizenry that can read, that knows the laws, knows the constitutions, can read ballots, read newspapers, and so on, you really can't have a Republican form of government. Another thing that the priesthood of all believers meant was equality. If we're all priests before God, then there's an equality there. And all of these things then are influenced by this Reformation concept of sola scriptura. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law and learning about the impact that the Reformation had on the liberty that we have enjoyed for many, many years since. Colonel, please pick up wherever you would like. We were talking about sola scriptura and the idea that scripture alone is the ultimate authority in this meaning that we need a literate public that can read the scriptures, but that literate public is also one of the things that made representative government possible. But a couple other things we should know there are that one of the results of this is that in Reformation churches, Calvinist churches like Presbyterian, Baptist, and so on, and Lutheran churches and so on, we tend to see less hierarchical government, that is government from the top down, and more from the bottom up, congregational and Presbyterian forms of government. And this also formed a model for representative government in the civil realm. And then one more principle, the sacredness of all vocations. The idea that if every believer is a priest before God, then you are exercising your priesthood before God, whether you are doing so as a clergyman from the pulpit, or whether you're a mechanic, or a farmer, or a lawyer, or a businessman, or whatever capacity in which you're serving. And that means that all vocations are forms of ministry. All vocations are sacred. Therefore, whatsoever ye do, Paul says, do it heartily as unto the Lord. In other words, we're working for God when we're working at our secular job. And this led to what is sometimes called the Protestant or Puritan work ethic. And I would say the work ethic is one of the things that has made free enterprise work effectively in the United States. And as we are in a generation today that likes to take it easier and think of those who built this country as workaholics, I would say, how are we going to preserve our standard of living if we eliminate the work ethic that made it what it is? What are we going to replace it with? But now there's another principle here we mentioned here, sola gratia, that is, that salvation is by grace, not by works, but by grace. And as Luther would say, salvation has to be by grace, and he'd say by grace alone, because man is steeped in original sin from the days of Adam, and man is so totally depraved that he cannot do anything to save himself. Now, this pessimistic view of human nature leads to several conclusions about government. First of all, it means we need government. It means we can't live in a state of anarchy. That people being what they are, anarchy is just going to result in everybody abusing each other's freedoms and 
assaulting and robbing and murdering and enslaving each other. And so we need government to restrain the sinful nature of people. But secondly, those who run the government have the same sinful nature as everybody else, and so we can't trust them with absolute power. And so we need to limit their power. We need checks and balances and the like to make Republican self-government work properly. Luther, for example, one time wrote when he talked about the need to limit government, the experience recorded in all chronicles and in Holy Scripture besides teaches this truth. The less law, the more justice. The fewer commandments, the more good works. No community that had many laws was ever at least for a long period of time, well-governed. At another occasion, he wrote, between temporal government and a tyrannical rule, a permanent difference should certainly obtain. A tyrant takes from his subjects as long as he finds something to take. This privilege, the Lord, does not here want to concede to government. On the contrary, by the fact that he commands the subjects given to Caesar that which is Caesar's, he also wants to give governors or emperors to understand that they are not to demand or take more than is theirs. Therefore, he distinguishes that which is yours from that of your own, which you are to give to government. For governments have been instituted for the purpose, have, I'm sorry, governments have not been instituted for the purpose of turning people into mere beggars and seeing to it that no people keep anything. Taxes, revenues, or imposts are given to government that the subjects may retain their own seek a livelihood and honorably support themselves and those who are theirs. Once again, calling for limited government. And though this wasn't really practiced in Luther's time, he did write in his exposition on the book of Deuteronomy, here you see that government should be elected by the votes of the people. Reason also dictates this. For to force a government upon a people against its will is perilous and pernicious. There's another point that I would stress in regard to Luther's views of law and government, and that is his view that we call the two kingdoms, church and state. He would refer to them as the church, the kingdom of the right, and the state, the kingdom of the left. But up until this time, we had seen the Roman Catholic Church taking the position that, yes, there are two kingdoms, but the church is the superior of the two kingdoms, and in fact, the state gets its power through the church. That's many times why we would see popes or cardinals ordain kings and emperors, because that symbolized that God gave power to the king, but gave it through the church, and the church was superior. Luther took the position that church and state neither was superior to the other, but rather each had a distinctive role. The role of the church was to preach the gospel, to train people in the principles of the word. The purpose of the state was to preserve external peace, to protect people from abuses, from foreign invasions, or from domestic criminals. And he didn't see church and state as being enemies of each other. As he saw, they work together, and each complements the other. The church can do its job better if the state is doing its job, if the state is keeping the streets free and keeping foreign invaders from our shores, then it's easier for the church to preach the gospel. If the church is preaching the word of God and producing virtuous people, virtuous people are going to be more law-abiding 
and that makes it easier for the state to do, to do its job. So church and state, as Luther saw them, properly complement each other and help each other rather than being at odds, as some of those today would like to suggest. Luther also suggested that we have a strong duty to obey civil government, but that was not an absolute duty. There were times when we need to obey God rather than man. If civil government commands what the word of God forbids, or forbids what the word of God commands, then as we read in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. And Luther wrote in 1539 concerning the Holy Roman Emperor and his attempts to impose things upon the Lutherans of northern Germany. Our princes have therefore decided that in such a case, his imperial majesty is not emperor, but a warrior, servant, and robber of the people, as the latter in such a war is the real leader and emperor. This is the attitude of our estates. The German princes have more right as against the emperor than the people in that day had against Saul, and Ahikam had against Jehoiakim. The emperor is not an autocrat, and it is not within his authority to depose the electoral princes and change the form and glory of the empire, and it is not to be permitted should he attempt it. Inasmuch as this could not and dare not be permitted in any way as affecting business matters and temporal affairs, how much less is it to be endured if his imperial majesty began and wage a war for a foreign cause and in the interests of the devil? If his majesty does not know that the cause is so evil, it is nevertheless sufficient for us that we know it and are certain of it. So Luther believed in submission to civil authority, but not absolute submission. And there was a time at which civil rulers needed to be disobeyed. That time may be today. And I might just note something in regard to President Biden's mandates that he has issued in regard to contractors, businesses that have more than 100 employees, and in regard to contractors that do business with the federal government, that they have to dismiss anybody who will not get the COVID vaccine. The Attorney General of Montana, Austin Knudsen, has issued an Attorney General's opinion on this to all federal contractors in Montana. And he says, following guidance I issued last week, to clear up confusion disseminated by President Biden during his September 9th speech, and then talks about further inquiries. And he says, Biden's executive order applies only to new federal contracts, new contract-like instruments, new solicitation for contracts, or renewals of existing federal contracts. By the plain language of the president's executive order, there is no vaccination requirement imposed on existing federal contractors. It does not and cannot require federal contractors with existing agreements with the federal government to discriminate against their employees based on vaccination status. He goes on to say that that federal order is not directed against federal contractors, it's directed against federal agencies and how they contract with contractors, not the contractors themselves. A lot of things we haven't been told that once again, maybe Luther is right. There is a duty to resist.
welcome you back to our final segment on this week's Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, it's been fascinating to hear about what motivated uh, Martin Luther to, to make his stand, and, and so interesting to see how that uh, that relationship between church and state, um, it's never been a slam dunk. I mean, it's, it's, it's constantly been in a state of flux, and, and I'm grateful for the clarity that uh, people like Luther offered. Some people would say Luther is not as clear. In fact, next week we're going to talk about John Calvin. Calvin, in some ways, is probably clearer than Luther, because Calvin had the benefit of 25 years of Luther's developing thought. But Luther's writings also are very hard to separate from his personality. And Calvin's are much easier to separate. But I'll talk more about that next week. I'd like to talk just a little more about what Luther had to say concerning civil government and his ideal in civil government, which was the godly Christian prince. He said a prince must also act in a Christian way toward God. That is, he must subject himself to him in entire confidence and pray for wisdom to rule well, as Solomon did. But then he says, however, to be qualified to rule, it is not enough to be pious. A jackass can be pious. Ability and experience are required in order to rule. One may find a pious person who can hardly count to five. He who is to rule dare not lack reason, prudence, wit, and wisdom if he does not want to work great harm to his government, for government is subject to reason. And Luther often identified reason with the law of nature, and some have said that Luther made a very sharp distinction between reason and revelation and said that civil government is under the control of reason, not revelation. Let's explain what he means here. First of all, revelation, of course, means the word of God, the Bible. And reason means what we know by logic, by evidence, and things we can figure out with our own minds. And Luther has been quoted as saying, beware the weather witch reason, or some have translated that, beware the whore reason. And when Luther says that, he's not saying that reason is necessarily evil. What he's saying, rather, is that reason is kind of like a hired gun. In other words, a prosecutor uses reason to try to convince the jurors that the defendant is guilty. The defense attorney uses the same powers of reason, the same laws of logic, the same rules of evidence to try to convince that jury that the defendant is not guilty. And so reason is kind of like a hired gun. But it's a hired gun, he would say, in the hands of people who are of limited intellect, and therefore they're not going to know how to use it properly, but also who are of sinful mind, and therefore even that which they do know, they are likely to distort and that being the case, he says, whenever there appears to be a conflict between reason and revelation, we go with revelation, what the Word of God says. But certainly there's a place for reason in the church, and certainly as people preach sermons, they are taking the Word of God, but as they take the Word of God, they're using principles of reason to apply them, and certainly... There's a place for revelation in the affairs of civil government as well. To read what Luther wrote to the elector Frederick, and might say something about 
the northern princes of Germany, that Luther was of Saxon. That is, he was the province of Saxony in northern Germany. Saxony had had a strong drive for freedom going way back to the Angles and the Saxons of old Germany, way back even before the time of Christ. But at the time that Luther was studying law, northern Germany was under the Anglo-Saxon common law. It had been under that common law ever since the days of the Romans, when Tudorburg Forest, the Battle of Tudorburg Forest took place in 9 AD. And in those days, when Herman the Liberator had driven the Roman legions back across the Rhine, meaning that northern Germany was free from the centralizing influence of Roman law, and not only northern Germany, but Scandinavia as well. And so for all these years, the centralizing Roman law, which had governed most of southern Germany, and they had their Germanic codes, but usually Roman law with a few Germanic touches. But in northern Germany, they still had the old Anglo-Saxon common law, decentralized individual rights. And the northern princes of Germany were very much in favor of keeping that common law. But the emperor was trying to force the Roman law upon them, the Holy Roman Emperor, as he was called, with kind of a loose confederation of Roman states or German states under him. It was said that the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. It was kind of a loose confederation, but it did serve some purpose. But at any rate, the northern princes strongly rejected this effort by the Pope and by the Holy Roman Emperor to force Roman law upon them. And that may be one of the things that caused them to gravitate toward Luther. Now, they also liked Luther's theology, but they didn't just like his theology, they liked his views of law and politics as well, and that's one of the reasons why they worked together so well. One of the German princes there, the elector or Prince of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, a very strong ally of Luther. And then when he died and his brother took over, Brother John the Steadfast, as he was called, called John the Steadfast because he had said that he would go to prison for the rest of his life rather than compromise one word of the Lutheran Augsburg Confession. But when the Diet of Worms took place, the Diet were the, that is the, commission of the Holy Roman Empire, where Luther was called to give account for what he had said and called upon to recant his writings. And when Luther made the statement there that I'm willing to recant, I'm willing to apologize for, I'm willing to burn anything I've written, the only thing I ask you to do is show me from the word of God where I am wrong. And until you do that, I will not recount. Here I stand. God help me. I can do no other. Well, Luther was declared an outlaw for this. And being declared an outlaw, that meant that anybody who came upon him was not only allowed but commanded to either kill or capture him and turn him over to the central authority. But the elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, 
intervened on his behalf. Now, obviously, if he believed on central complete obedience to the emperor, he wouldn't have done this, but he staged the capture of Luther. And it was like a kidnapping, like Luther was being kidnapped on the road. And these brigands kidnapped him, supposedly, but actually they were rescuing him. And they took him up to Wartburg Castle. That's a castle on top of a mountain. And he lived in that castle to, for safekeeping for over a year. And even the occupants of the castle didn't know who he was. They, call, they called him Knight George, thinking he was simply a knight. During the entire time of that year while he was there, he accomplished many, many remarkable things. And probably one of the most remarkable things that he accomplished was translating the entire New Testament from the Latin and the Greek and the Hebrew as well, translating it into the German. So when he was finished and when it was safe for him to come down from the mountain and rejoin society, he brought with him the word of God, that is the New Testament at least, in the language of the people, so the people could read it, the people could know the word of God, people could be saved, they could understand these principles and also apply those principles to law and government as well. So once again, we see the important influence of the Reformation upon the American Constitution and American law and government. We'll see that more next week with John Calvin.